Good morning. morning. And let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, again, we are so thankful for your love, for Jesus. We ask your spirit to join us, enlighten us, help us draw closer to you and to each other as we study your word. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So we are going to be doing lesson 10 in our quarterly uh, Hebrews, but before we uh, get into the lesson, I want to, or lesson 10, I want to drop back and, and pick up a little something out of lesson 9, out of Thursday's lesson last week. And the first paragraph out of Thursday's lesson last week uh, says the following. The forgiveness of our sins implies two phases in Jesus' mediation in the two apartments of the heavenly sanctuary. First, Jesus removed our sins and carried them himself on the cross in order to provide forgiveness to everyone who believes in him. On the cross, Jesus won the right to forgive anyone who believes in him because he has carried their sin. He also has inaugurated a new covenant which allows him to put God's law in the hearts of believers through the Holy Spirit. What law lens do you hear being described here? What does it mean Jesus carried our sins? Does it sound like some sort of stuff he carried? Some commodity, uh, some deeds or acts or, or lists? What? Guilt is one thing, but sin, how can you transfer that if you never... Excellent question. Excellent question. How can you transfer something that doesn't make sense? Exactly. Excellent. So, so can so that's the point. Can you transfer sins from one person to another, or are they inferring that you're not transferring sins? You're transferring the punishment for the sins. That he'll be punished for our sins. Is that what they're inferring? That he carried our sins, and the responsibility and the punishment will be put upon him. Yes. I think it's like he was like the scapegoat in the um, tabernacle scenario. So some church groups teach it that way. Others teach that the scapegoat, the high priest is Jesus, and the scapegoat is Satan, who was taken out in the wilderness and abandoned and never uh, come again. So, so if you use the scapegoat metaphor, most Adventists would not accept that. Adventists teach the view that, that Satan is the scapegoat, who is ultimately held responsible for the sins of everyone. I always thought it was like he took the burden or the pain of our sins. He took the burden or the pain. So you, having accepted Jesus in your sa- as your Savior, no longer have any pain from sin in your life because he's taken all the pain and the burdens of sin from us. <laughs> or do we all still struggle with pains and suffering because of sin in, in the world and even our own sin? Did David, after his confession and re- repentance and reconciliation with God, still suffer with pain from his sin? <clears throat> Absalom, rebellion, and death, was that pain that came from his sin? Yes. Okay. So did he take all the pain from our sin? He doesn't always take it away, but like parents, he experiences pain when we go through things that cause pain. Oh, well, that's true, but that's not what this is talking about. That's empathy. And of course he does. So do you think... Something different than taking bad deeds upon himself and being punished for us. Do we understand that we are born in sin and that we have a condition of being out of harmony with God that without restoration or healing results in death? And so Jesus took not our sins upon himself, but our sinfulness upon himself. He took the condition upon himself in order to overcome and heal, not acts. So forg- but forgiveness is described here as something that God cannot do unless he receives a blood sacrifice of an innocent human being. That's what it says, basically. That Jesus died on the cross and he won the right to forgive. God did not have the right to forgive anybody unless he received the blood of an innocent human sacrifice, his son. Do you know what that is generally, that, that, that religious philosophy? Paganism. Thank you. It's paganism. That's exactly, paganism is always the deity requiring some offering in order to then get the blessing from the deity. This is paganism in its raw form right here. And, and it deeply embeds Christianity because of the flawed law concept of an imposed imperial law. Anytime you hear the word rights, 
automatically that we're talking about an imposed law system. So did Jesus, God, Father, Son, Spirit, not have the right to forgive without a blood payment? Or were they free to forgive? They were always, in fact, was God's forgiveness ever an issue? Or did God so love the world that he sent his son? God was for us. Who can be against us? Forgetting God to forgive was never an issue. It was getting humans to repent that was the issue. It was getting the sin in the human heart and mind to remit or be removed that was the issue. It was restoring humans back to harmony with God that was the issue. So Christ didn't come in order to earn God a right. What did he come for? To provide God with what, you can use this, use the word that I like, the remedy or the tools necessary to actually fix the broken human condition. The broken human condition cannot be fixed by divine power being imposed over the human condition. Why not? It's freedom of the law of liberty. Because that would turn any sinner who God forced with his power to conform either into a robot or, or, a new, or a new creature of some kind. It wouldn't be the same person. Their individuality would be destroyed. The only way to save your individuality is through your free will participation, and none of us could freely participate and overcome and destroy the sin problem. Jesus had to do that for us. So Jesus came, partook of our humanity, tempted in every way just like we are, yet he chose consistently as a human to say no to the temptation and destroyed the infection of fear and selfishness while simultaneously revealing the truth about God. The lesson focuses on the second phase of the ministry of Jesus, in, in which, which is the pre-advent judgment. The lesson states, quote, In this judgment, the records of their lives will be open for the universe to see. Have the records of the humans who have died throughout history been hidden from the onlooking universe? They were unaware? Doesn't the Bible say in 1 Corinthians 4, 9 that we are a theater, a spectacle to angels and to men. That's a quote. First Corinthians 4 9. Do angels in heaven look at each other when King David's name comes up in the judgment and go, Oh my, he committed adultery and murder. Oh, but good news, he repented. We had no idea. I'm glad we opened these records so we could find out. Can angels read our thoughts? No. no. And if they can read our thoughts, if they can, do they need an investigative judgment to review records of the hearts and minds and thoughts of the people they've been reading all along? Yes. My view is that only God has the innate ability to read our thoughts. However, my view is God has granted the angels that ability to do. He's permitted them to do it. They don't have the innate ability. He's permitted them to do it, but fallen angels cannot. This is my view. Right. Pardon? That's why we have new angels that minister to us. Angels that minister to us. They know, yep. Uh, we have minuscule example of humans getting this brief ability. When Joseph was given the insight of the dreams of Pharaoh, he knew the thoughts or the processes that Pharaoh had in his mind without being told. That was God giving God is the revealer of secrets. And so God can give this ability to people. It's also the historic Adventist view. And I'll read you a couple of quotes from Ellen White. First is Gospel Workers, 92, excuse me, Gospel Workers, page 417. Uh, quote, Satan and his evil angels around us, Satan has his evil angels around us, and though they cannot read men's thoughts, they closely watch their words and actions. And then, um, in Review and Herald, March 22, 1887, the adversary of souls is not permitted to read the thoughts of men, but he's a keen observer and marks the words and takes into account the actions. And then, Second Testimonies 180. Do not forget that angels of God were in attendance and that their pure eyes were reading your thoughts, the intents and purposes of your heart and taking cognizance of every act and delineating your true, frivolous character. So, 
Uh, I believe only God has the innate ability, but I believe he has granted the angels in heaven the ability to read our thoughts, but not the fallen angels. So angels fall, So you don't need to worry about Satan knowing what you're thinking. But your guardian angel can know. And aren't you glad for that? Yeah, it can help you along the way. Okay? Now, if the angels in heaven can already read our thoughts, then the purpose of the investigative judgment is not to reveal things to the angels that they don't already know. That's not its purpose. You may have heard the same idea put another way, that angels in heaven are worried who will be safe neighbors in heaven and need to investigate and ensure that those sinners from earth that come there will be safe to live next door to. This is a common, common, common thing that's presented. Why is, in fact, this incorrect and not necessary? Why is it not necessary? Self-evident. Self-evident. Let's walk through this. God is the God of reality, how things actually work. And what is it that destroys the wicked in the end? Sin. Sin. That's correct. Sin destroys. And when are the wicked destroyed by sin? When, when does that happen? There is a putting it to sleep at the second coming, but the eternal destruction of sin at the end of a thousand years, New Jerusalem, Jesus rises up above and what's it say? Fire comes out. A consumer. And where does the fire flow first? Into the city and out through the gates. Who's in the city? The righteous are in the city. And do they get consumed and destroyed? No. What does that tell you about the quality of this fire? It's not combustible. It's not combustion, and it actually doesn't harm. It's the presence of God. It's the infinite glory of God and... In Daniel chapter 7, described the ancient, takes us, ancient of days, takes us on a rivers of fire come out from before me. Thousand and thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand stand in this fire. This is the fire that you see at the Mount of Transfiguration when Elijah and Moses are standing with Jesus. Brighter than the sun. The fire that Moses' face a little bit reflected. Okay, This is the fire of infinite truth and infinite love. And it flows out to those who've hardened themselves in sin. And if you've ever dealt with unrepentant sinners, what happens if they won't repent is they, what do they do in their own mind? Justify? Rationalize? Deflect. Deflect, project, externalize, lie, twist. They make a false world that makes them look good and avoids any sense of responsibility for their evil. How will all those falsehoods and lies work when they're being bathed in infinite truth? They become aware. They become aware of the truth of who they are. The the reality of their own ugliness. The pain and suffering they've caused others that's still in their heart. And there's a weeping and a gnashing of teeth and they beg for the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the presence of God. Is this suffering being inflicted by God? No. no, it is not. It is the natural, unavoidable consequence that comes when sinners are in the presence of infinite truth and love. And this is what God has been shielding us from and trying to restore us to unity so we can stand in that presence. So, in the end, they die. Why? Why? Sin is combustible. God lets them reach. Sin is not combustible. It's not combustible. Combustible means uh, like this table. If we light it on fire, it will actually. Yeah, no, it's not. Is sin a a a piece of matter? Is it is it molecular? No, no. Its roots are lies. Saints, the father of lies, and selfishness, which is anti-love. And truth burns out lies, and love burns out selfishness. And that's why uh, those who are lost are lost because they did not love the truth, and thus be saved. Or heal, okay? And so what happens is they will eventually self-terminate, just like Judas did. Because they don't want to live in a universe of love and truth. That's not, that's not joy for them. That's pain for them. Okay? And so, as you said, at the end of time, those who are unfit, it is both self-evident and self-limiting. Those who, have, those who would be poor neighbors in heaven. 
Self-evident, those who are unsafe reveal themselves by fleeing and running from God's presence. And self-limiting, their sin condition limits and prevents them from living in God's life-giving glory. They don't want to be there. And they end up self-terminating. And so there's absolutely no reason for a pre-advent judgment for the angels in heaven to feel comfortable on who's going to be there because no one can be there who isn't restored to unity. Okay, then what is the purpose of the pre-advent judgment? For us to see what God has done to try to save those people. Well, we have a magazine. I, I uh, Fran, uh, they're, they're around here somewhere, aren't they? Did you bring some? Okay, not that one. Um, uh, I wanted to hold one up, but I don't have one. Yeah. Um, so um, the pre-advent judgment magazine. If you're online, we have the PDF you can download. You can read it online, or if you have a U.S. postal address, we'll ship them. But the Heavenly Sanctuary Investigative Judgment for the Modern World. Um, bottom line is that Christ is working to remove all traces of selfishness and sin from the characters of the righteous so that we will be able to stand in his life-giving glory. He's cleansing his sanctuary from sin. So the cross was where Christ saved the species in his own person, and the sanctuary is the application of his achievements into the lives of people who trust him to bring us back into at one with him and his Father. All right, let's turn to Lesson 10. Lesson 10, the first paragraph in the lesson references John 14, 1 through 3, and states Jesus ascended to prepare a place for them. And let's read John 14, 1 through 3. I think you may know this one. Let not your heart but yes. Let let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you might be also. Uh, did anyone here not know that? Don't raise your hand. We all know that one, right? <laughs> okay. We all know that one. Hasn't this been encouraging to us since childhood when we learned it? But now the question, what does it mean? Is Jesus building each of us a mansion? Is that what it means? That's what I thought as a child. Modern Bible translations don't use the word mansions because the the Greek word translated mansion simply means dwelling places. And in the 17th century, when the King James was written, the word mansion did not mean a pretentious, posh, ornate home. It, it actually literally meant, mansion simply meant a dwelling place. And so most of your modern translations will say, he went to prepare a, either rooms in my father's house, or many rooms, or he went to prepare dwelling places for us instead of mansions. Does that, does that discourage you? Uh, abiding places in my father's house um, was Jesus saying that he went to heaven to start a construction project (laughs) a new subdivision I wasted a lot of time picking out decor yeah (laughs) yeah I'm going to say well how, how long would it take the creator God who can speak galaxies into existence to create buildings yeah Is this passage truly about structures in heaven, or is Jesus actually referring to something else? If the saved are to return to living anything like Adam and Eve had, what kind of structures did God give Adam and Eve as their home? And and, and, uh, don't we commonly say we're returning to an earth made new? And so these mansions then, what what is is this mansion idea then? What are these dwelling places? Uh, Did Jesus use this phrase, my father's house, anywhere else? In the temple. John 2.16, Jesus said the following, Get out of here. You dare to turn my father's house into a market? Here Jesus refers to the temple as his father's house. Does that give any insight into John 14? In my father's house are many dwelling places. In my father's temple is room for many. Is that what he's saying in John 14? Dwelling places of the Spirit. What about uh, this text? Does this give any insight? 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house 
to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. What does it mean being built into a spiritual house? And is that related to, I'm going to heaven to, to my father's house to prepare a place, a dwelling place for you? Hmm. Yes? Something about the temples comes to mind. The temple, yes. Oh, these temples, he's saying. Okay. <laughs> Consider this text and see what you think about this one. I'm really going to stretch you now. Get, get ready to have your mind stretched. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. We're talking about Jesus going to heaven to prepare dwelling places in his father's house, and his father's house is a temple, and we're living. So listen to this. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. Now, we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. I'm going to prepare a dwelling place for you. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling that Christ is going to prepare for us. I just threw that part in. <laughs> so, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made for us this very purpose, made for us this very purpose, and has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing us what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that what as, that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from him. Notice this now. Still the context, the context of preparing a place. In the context of his temple, think, think, see if this applies to the sanctuary message, which is an investigative judgment message. Notice these next words of what he's saying. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him in the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Okay, let your mind, stretching it. Can you integrate that text? Does it have any connection to in my father's house are many dwelling places? I'm going to prepare a place for you. I will come back and receive is, is Are they connected? This idea that we have a building from God, an eternal house, a dwelling place in heaven. Not this old tent we're in right now. We are living stones being built together in a house for the Lord. There's a pillar. I mean, it will be a pillar. And Revelation says we will be pillars in the house of the Lord or the temple of God, and we will never leave it. We'll be in prison up there, locked in that building for all eternity. Or Psalm says, what's the end of Psalms 23? Dwell in the house of the Lord. Dwell in the house of the Lord. Forever. Are we putting the pieces together, the puzzle? How about, does this one help? This is uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 47 through 54. The first Adam, made of earth, came from earth. The second Adam came from heaven. Who are these two people? Who's the first Adam? Who's the second Adam? Adam and Jesus. Okay. Those who belong to the earth are like the one who was made of earth. Those who are of heaven are like the one who came from heaven. What does Paul say? Those who are earthly, selfish, are like the one made of dirt. They decay and return to dirt. Those who accept Jesus and are reborn are of the life. They're like the one who came from heaven, and they won't decay, but will go to heaven. Note what comes next. Just as we wear the likeness where? 
W-E-A-R. Just like we wear the likeness of the man of earth, so we will wear the likeness of the man of heaven, from heaven. I go to prepare a dwelling place for you. What is the likeness of the man of heaven that we're going to wear? Yeah, my first thought was uh, the robe of heaven, the robe, the robe of righteousness, the womb of heaven, with not one thread of man. But certainly, we will wear the character in our in our hearts and minds. But this speaking here only of character. In the context before, Paul talks about there are all different types of bodies. Fish have one type. Uh, animals have another. Humans, uh, the, the star has one type. The sun has a different type. They're all glorious in their different bodies. Um, now he's talking about the bodies here. That's when we're glorified. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he's talking, yeah, about our sick, sin, sin-filled, diseased bodies. That's what the wear out. And we're going to exchange it for something new, something like, not like we inherited from Adam, but something like the one from heaven. That's what we're going to wear. We're going to wear that. Keep going with the, with the text. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that what is made of flesh and blood cannot share the kingdom of God. And what is mortal cannot possess immortality. Does this mean, uh, when he uses the term flesh and blood, that he's talking human beings? No, because Elijah, Moses, Enoch, and Jesus himself all have human, they're all human, and they're there in flesh and blood. They're there in real bodies. So he's not talking about humanity. No human being can be there. Flesh and blood is talking about the carnal, the fleshly. The natural carnal heart is... Enmity. Enmity. There you go. That's what he's talking about. He says it in another place in Romans. So, what is fleshly or earthly that we inherited from Adam, it cannot possess eternal life. It's contrary to life. It is enmity to life. We must exchange. Listen, uh, and then and then he tells us a secret. Listen to this secret truth. We shall not all die, but when the last trumpet sounds, we shall all be changed in an instant, as quickly as the blinking of an eye. For when the trumpet sounds, the dead will be raised, never to die again, and we shall all be changed. For what is mortal must be changed into what is immortal. What what will die must be changed into what cannot die. So when this takes place, and the mortal has been changed into the immortal, then the scriptures will be true, death is destroyed, victory is complete. Just go back to add any light to this idea, Jesus went to prepare a place, a dwelling place for us. What makes us mortal? It's both our sinful characters and our current physiological physiology which decays it decays it ages it wears out and both have to be exchanged we have to have new hearts and right spirits and we ultimately need new physiology don't we in order to possess the immortal body for death to be swallowed we need to have a new heart and right spirit We need to have sinfulness purged from the character and mind in order to possess the immortal body, don't we? Isn't that right? Yes. So what would need to happen before this mortal puts on immortality, before the corruption puts on incorruption physiologically? Doesn't the heart and mind need to be cleansed of the rebellion? Amen. The investigative judgment. Cleansing hearts and minds, preparing them for the dwelling place that he's preparing for us. And so if we throw this into the mix, John eight thirty four through 36, Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, whomever commits sin is a slave to sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever. But a son abides forever. Therefore, the son makes you free. You should be free indeed. We want to have, in my father's house, are many dwelling places. If we're not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. This is not a construction project. 
So I paraphrased the Second Corinthians 5, 1 through 10 in the Remedy New Testament this way. Now, we know this earthly body is like a tent or hospital gown that wears out easily and leaves us exposed. And if this earthly body, which our individuality currently occupies, is destroyed, we have an eternal body that will never wear out, a heavenly dwelling place for our individuality, but not built by human hands. Meanwhile, the older we get, the more we groan, longing to be free of this deteriorating body. and to be clothed in our perfect heavenly body. Can anybody say amen to that? I'm not hearing any young people say (laughs) (laughs) Because when we have exchanged this mortal body for our heavenly one, we will not be found sick, dying, and exposed. For while we are in this collapsing tent, we groan with the burden of aging and slow decay. We don't want to die to be rid of this worn-out body, but want to be translated directly into he- uh, to our heavenly body so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by eternal life. God's intention for us has never changed. He created us to live eternally, and as the first phase of our restoration, he has given us the spirit to heal our minds, guaranteeing our future complete recreation. We certainly know that as long as this frail body is our home, we remain away from the Lord. But we live by trusting God with how things turn out, not by waiting to see the full restoration. Therefore, we are confident while in this mortal body, even though we prefer to be translated into our heavenly body and be at home with the Lord. Our goal is to be pleasing to him by living in harmony with his design for life, whether we are in this mortal body or our heavenly one. For we, we, for we will all appear in Christ's examining room so that each one may be accurately diagnosed and receive what their condition warrants, whether from compliance or noncompliance with God's treatment plan. And then I paraphrase the, uh, the John 14, 1 through 3, the following. Don't let fear and doubt trouble your hearts. Put your full trust in God and trust me too. In my father's home, there is room for all who want to be there. If it were not true, I would have told you. I am going there to direct all my father's resources who are not only preparing heaven for you, but also preparing you for heaven. And when all things are ready, I will come back and take everyone who has been brought back into unity with the principles of heaven to be there with me so that we may all be together. Any, any comments? Thoughts? What do you think about the John 14 text now? Go to prepare a place for you. It's kind of exciting, isn't it? Do you see it's connected to the, the heavenly sanctuary and the investigative judgment? Did you ever see that before? Sunday's lesson points out that the various feasts in the Old Testament had a prophetic significance. They were designed to forecast, foretell, reveal, teach the plan of salvation. These feasts repeated on an annual cycle, and uh, they teach the grand overview of the plan of salvation from Adam's fall until the restoration of the earth made new. And I'll walk you through how this annual cycle starts with the fall and ends with the restoration. So the first, first feast of the annual cycle was Passover. As soon as Adam sinned in Eden, God passed over their sins. And it says in Romans 3.25, God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Christ, at that moment, is the Lamb of God slain from the Mount of Sinai. (laughs) Oh, foundation of the earth. Thank you. Thank you. That's right. Uh, Slain from the foundation of the earth. He was the one committed from the moment that Adam sinned to be the remedy to take and cure or resolve the sin problem. And so the Passover lamb goes all the way back to Eden, not simply at Sinai or the, uh, or, or coming out of Egypt and the, uh, and the night of the 10th plague. But God gave the people about to leave Egypt, uh, this system to not only teach the larger reality, but 
the lessons of the people of Egypt. We've talked about this before. The Bible is a Bible that records human history through the lens of the plan of salvation, and we have real lives of real people who did real stuff that are historic, and much of what is recorded there is not only historic, it is an object lesson. It teaches the larger reality. Egypt, they were slaves in Egypt. A country that who is God that I should know him? A godless place. This is symbolic of humans who are slaves in sin. When they are leaving Egypt, before they leave, they put the blood on the doorposts, the blood of the sacrificial animal, which represents Jesus, Jesus, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, on the doorposts, which represent taking in the life of Christ into their hearts. And all who take in the life of Christ into their hearts are set free from sin. If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And so this is an object lesson, the Passover, that he passes over the sins that we commit uh, in, in, in some legal concept because they're symptoms of a condition with which, which we didn't choose, we were born with. And all those who accept Christ get a new heart and right spirit, Okay, And we are set free from the domination of sin controlling us, and we live lives uh, to godly. So, so the point being is the Passover does symbolize coming out of Egypt, but that whole symbolism is actually the symbolism of the larger plan of salvation itself. And then the next uh, uh, feast was the unleavened bread, which all happened uh, right there on that first weekend. Immediately... After sin, not only God passed over, God began dispensing truth. Unleavened bread represents Jesus, the word, okay? The living word, the word of truth, unleavened without any falsehood or lies in it, unleavened, okay? Mixed with bitter herbs. What are the bitter herbs symbolic of my view is that once they sinned, the truth that they needed to apply was painful and bitter truths. Okay, in order to follow the plan of salvation, and so as this is this is because of their sinful state now it became a bitter thing, but it was a still a healing thing. No spoonful of sugar. <laughs> okay, this also represents the time. Uh, oh, and by the way, the Passover, the time of Adam, the time in history from Adam's fall until the crucifixion of Christ, is all covered in that human history in the Passover. Okay. The unleavened bread also represents the time from Adam's fall to the Christ's victory. Eating the unleavened bread it symbolizes internalizing the truth that Jesus revealed through all places that Jesus revealed truth, whether it's in nature, that comes from Jesus, whether it's a written word that comes from Jesus, whether people have a direct personal experience with Jesus, the truth that we internalize from Jesus is represented by the unleavened bread. Truth dispels lies, wins us to trust. The next feast was the fir- feast of first fruits. The feast of first fruits is the victory over death because the, the idea here is the seed, and Jesus used this metaphor, is planted in the ground and it dies to bring forth life. Jesus on the cross died, went into the grave, came out of the grave to bring forth life. He destroyed death and brought life and immortality to life, it says in Second Timothy um, 1.10. And so when Jesus uh, rose, the wave sheaf, there's a wave sheaf, and then there was other first fruits that were brought. The wave sheaf is Jesus. He's the one who has the keys to death and the grave and destroys death and overcame the power, uh, um, destroyed him as the power of death that is the devil, Hebrews 2.14. And all the rest of the grains or fruits that were offered are the um, uh, individuals who were raised with Jesus. At least over 500 people came up out of the grave, according to Acts, and and walked around, and then I believe were translated and went to heaven with Jesus. And and some of those people we have names of, uh, not at that time, but some of the some of the people who also are part of my view of the first fruits, Enoch, well, Enoch, um, uh, uh, Moses, Elijah, these people. And if you read in Revelation about people sitting on the thrones up there, the the, uh, the saints on the thrones. Okay, they would be some of the the first fruits that are already up in heaven. So, and then that came for the Feast of Weeks. We commonly call it Pentecost, and the Feast of Weeks was the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, um, which was uh, Christ dispensing and began dispensing his achievements uh, into the hearts and minds of believers. This occurred after the death of Christ. It was about what fifty days later, something like that. I think so. Yeah, and the symbolic time period would be from Pentecost, which is A.D. 33, up until the loud cry. 
This is the Feast of Weeks, dispensing and taking the truth out to advance the victory of Christ and humanity. Uh, again, we're looking at human history taught through the, through the, the feast. The next is the, this is the Feast of Trumpets. This is a special message. It's a prepare, prepare. This was in the, in the symbolic system. Prepare for the Day of Atonement was the point of the trumpets. Okay, Judgment is coming. Prepare yourself. That's what the Feast of Trumpets was to alert people. Uh, this uh, is, uh, in the reality, the loud cry. The loud cry is the fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets, where the message went out, Jesus is coming soon. This is the great awakening that happened uh, uh, in the uh, 18th and 19th century. Uh, and this is the fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets, focusing the world's mind that Jesus is coming back. And next, after Trumpets, came Atonement, the, uh, which is atonement or reunification with God. This is the healing and restoration of Christ-like character within the hearts and minds of the believers, settling into the truth so that we cannot be moved, having our hearts and minds cleansed from fear and selfishness that, that previously we, we uh, let control us, and being perfected, just like Job, perfect and righteous in all his ways, Daniel, the three worthies. They, these are all examples of perfect people. How were they perfect? They weren't sinless. They were perfect because they did not let fear and selfishness control their actions, and they remained faithful. And what does it say in Revelation twelve eleven about these perfect people? These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. They would rather die than betray their loyalty to God. They may not understand it. They may be like Job. I don't understand what's going on. But I know. And I want to talk to him. Lord, I want to have a conversation. (laughs) And he wasn't arrogant about it. He just knew what was happening. He didn't cause. It wasn't his fault. As he was being told by his friends. And he, and he wasn't going to turn on the Lord as his wife was encouraging him to do. He had such faith and confidence in God that he could say, I don't know why this is happening, but if it's good for the Lord and, and what he's doing, he can slay me. I'm still going to trust him. Think about the people you love and trust. Do you love and trust a human so much that, that you, you could allow that there could be a circumstance that you could say, I know them so well and, they, and they're, they're so good. I trust them with my life. And if they need to, to kill me in a circumstance for the greater good, it's okay. I would let them do it. I trust them that much. I give them my life. I could think of multiple circumstances. The people you know. <laughs> Yes, of people I know, but I can think of multiple circumstances where a person could say that. My imagination is maybe different than yours. (laughs) But this is what atonement is, sealing and healing the hearts and minds of people. The sins of the people placed upon, and then after this is done, he goes in, I won't go through the whole ceremony, uh, in the book, I'm in our little magazine, I encourage you to read it from from modern day what's happening, um, preparing hearts and minds, but but I will say this to give a little clue. When Jesus returns, and he raises the, the, the sleeping saints from the grave, and we read about that in Thessalonians, the dead will rise, we which are alive will be caught together in the Lord. Will they come out rebellious sinners or perfectly sinless righteous saints? So the thief that died on the cross, the one that Jesus promised would be in paradise, will he come up with the righteous? Yes. Will he come up with the heart of a thief? Wanting to steal? How much uh, reformation and, and sanctification and work of growing in righteousness did he do on this earth? About an hour. (laughs) So might there be some elements still in his character that need to be um, cleansed? Investigated and cleansed. Investigated and cleansed. (laughs) So that when he comes up, he has no propensities or desires or impulses to steal? Exactly. Martin Luther, we many Christians believe, will be in heaven. One of the saints, Ellen White, admired Martin Luther, talked about what a man of God he was. 
Yeah, but he was a rabid anti-Semitic. Rabid anti-Semitic, and his writings were, in, were uh, felt to be integral in leading to the Nazi persecution of the Jews. Do you think he'll come up out of the grave hating Jews and wanting to hurt them? So did something, will something have to happen in his heart? Will something need to be cleansed in his mind before he's resurrected so he will come up with the right heart and new spirit? Will he need to have investigation of his individuality and the blood life of Christ applied to cleanse and remove? His sanctuary. His sanctuary. Yeah, this is what we describe in here and what's happening. The real cleansing is the cleansing of all the hearts and the minds of the people who have put their faith and trust in the Lord and given him permission to come in. And while they're asleep, it's like a patient who goes into surgery and the anesthesiologist puts them to sleep. And before they go, the doctor says, I'm going to do triple bypass surgery on you. And while you're asleep, things are happening in you that you can't do for yourself. Wow. But with your full permission. Because you know there's hardening of your heart and arteries. That you want to be fixed. This is what's happening, folks. It's reality. Any of this legal mumbo-jumbo obstructs people from understanding the truth. There is not a courtroom in heaven where books are being investigated, there's a jury sitting, prosecution and defense that is completely made up off of human law constructs. Yes? So what really happened in 1844? The, the transition for the final preparation that we're talking about right here. The, the, the focus and the emphasis of preparing the final people to be ready. Instead of spreading the gospel to bring converts and bringing people to trust, now it's the application of the final ha- ha- sealing and, and restoration, particularly of the people who will be translated. Particularly of the people who will be translated. But if God can create a universe with this, why couldn't he do that like that? Uh, so why couldn't he heal hearts and minds like that? Or, or do the investigative part? The investigative oh, part. Oh, yeah, that, that's already been done in my view. That's done. That was... That's, like this. This doesn't take time. What's taking time is what's happening on earth. The living. The living is what's taking time. A people who are, are prepared so we can go the overground route instead of the underground route. <laughs> okay. And then, and then, and, and so that, the atonement uh, started in the mid uh, 19th century and still going on right now. Preparing a people. And we're in a delay. We're wandering in the wilderness because the message of 1888 was rejected by leadership and our church has taken a false, penal, legal, fraudulent gospel to the world and all of our institutions instead of the true healing gospel to the world, the good news. And this is a movement is rising up amongst the laity to actually take the final message to the world. Come this afternoon when we do, uh, we're having a talk at 1.30, and we're going to talk about the religious liberty issues that have been happening over the last two years, and we'll explain, expand more the role the church was supposed to take, and you'll see some places where the church complete. And, it, and it's going to be a wake-up call, folks, a wake-up call. Yeah, I, I, won't, I won't give any more of that away, but I'm going to ask, like, you're going to go, what? It's a wake-up call this afternoon. <laughs> so the investigative judgment won't be complete until people are sealed, to the living people now are sealed. Yeah, so the investigative judgment, it completes when, when, the, when the middle group, there's three groups in history. There's always been three groups. Those sealed, sealed to God, Job, could not be shaken. Shadrach, Meshach, and Bendigo, going on fire, they would not be shaken. Daniel and the lions, could not be shaken. These people are sealed to God, settled. They do not love their life so much to shrink from death. There's always been a few of those. I think Jeremiah was another one. Okay. There's always been those who have gone down the sin route such that they've become so hardened that they can't be reached. The Sodomites ended up there. Pharaoh ended up there. And then there's a group in the middle who have not sealed for God, nor have they fully hardened. They're still reachable. That's the middle group. There's probably a lot of people, the majority of the population through much of history, they never really seal or choose for God. They never really fully harden. They go through the mundane routines of life, trying to be good people, but never really committing to live. And they're looking just to get by and so forth and so on. That's the middle group. At the end of time, before Christ comes, that middle group goes away. 
And events like COVID, and we'll talk about that this afternoon, are part of the events that are sifting that middle group and people are going into one side or the other. And you're going to see this afternoon, sadly, that many in the church are heading in the wrong side because they're listening to the wrong people and they have the wrong methods and they have the wrong law. That's the separation of the wheat and tares. And so when that group settles and, and the Lord allows events to unfold on earth that increase the tensions and problems on the planet, to wake people up to go, what's happening? And force people to make a decision on what law they will apply to their hearts and how they treat others. As you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. And the law is being written in the hearts and minds of people. And it's being written in the hearts and minds of people as they identify which methods and principles and values that they hold and they apply in how they treat their neighbor. And if they have the human law model as their religious model in heaven, rules that you got to keep, and if you don't keep them, you get punished, and that's what justice looks like, then they solidify on the worldly side as they claim a belief in Jesus. But if they have a creator God that they've worshipped because they've been called out of Babylon, and they worship him who made the heavens the earth, then they understand that we love our neighbors as ourselves. That we present truth and love, we leave people free. Love cannot be coerced or commanded. Amen. And we treat other people with respect. Even if they see it differently than us, we will not use force and we won't join the state to compel our consciences. That's settling into the people of God. And we trust him with how it turns out. That's what's happening. All right. And so after the, uh, after, and so that's what's happening right now. Atonement, settling at one, bringing people back into unity with God because his law is being put into their hearts. And the principles of fear and selfishness are being removed. They don't love their life so much as to shrink from death. That's the atonement that's happening right now. And then after that finishes, Christ returns. And we have the last feast in the cycle, which is tabernacles. We come, and they would build a little, little um, booths out of uh, green um, bows and so forth. And that represents our Eden home, the earth made new, that we are going to tabernacle with the Lord in an earth made new. And that's the whole plan of salvation, acted out on an annual cycle. Monday's lesson points out that God invited the people to come meet him face to face, but people were afraid and, uh, and asked that someone else go between them. They didn't want to meet. God was inviting the whole uh, at Sinai. All the people are going to come to the mountain and meet me face to face. And the people said, no, we're afraid. Let someone else stand between us. I want to go between. Why did they do this? because they did not know God. And without knowing God, their sin, understand what sin does. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because? Sin causes fear, and fear causes us to focus on self. So they didn't know God. They had sin. They were afraid. They focused on self. And then they judged God to be like they are. And how they would treat a sinner or somebody who had wronged them. And they were afraid because in their guilt and shame, they could not conceive that God would still love them and be gracious to them and leave their sins unpunished and not rash out against them. They knew that they were sinners and they were terrified that God is like them in character. And they were pagan in much of their views, and they needed something done to God to appease him so he wouldn't hurt them, because they would want something done to them to appease them, to pay them back, so they wouldn't lash out. And so someone go talk to him, find out what he wants, and then we'll do it. We'll do it. Just tell us what he wants. We'll do it. And all the Lord said, we will do. And this is the corruption. They didn't know him. Yes? I mean... What do you think about the impact of having seen what, according to what we read in the Bible, what God did to Pharaoh when what? he was disobedient? What did God do to Pharaoh? What did God do to Pharaoh? To Egypt. All of- but what did he do? That's great. I'm so happy, bro. This is exciting. This is like, no, no. This is exciting. Let me, let me, let me handle this. Okay, this is exciting. I'm really glad you brought this up. Yeah, no, no. This is good. This is fun. What did he actually do? Uh, no, no, no! You're, you're, you're jumping down to the end. You're jumping down. Start at the beginning. What did he do? 
He sent a prophet. He sent a prophet. He sent a messenger to Pharaoh with a message of life. With an opportunity of repentance. Did he not? Was that not what, what he did? He sent Moses with a message. And Pharaoh initially rejects the message. And so then what does God do next? He, he sends a message again. And but then and then after Pharaoh's not gonna and Pharaoh puts more burden on the people. God then That's no, 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 God God then allows plagues. Sends a plague. Which was the first plague? Was it water to blood? Water to blood. Now, you're Pharaoh. Your, what's your worldview? What's your belief system? Your God. Where does water come from? In, in desert nation of Egypt, was the Nile important to them? Yes. yes. And they worshipped us. They had a Nile God. So when God says this to them, and then turns the Nile to blood, what's he doing for Pharaoh? Gently showing Pharaoh that the Nile God is impotent. He's showing that your God is powerless. You're not actually worshiping God. I'm God. You're worshiping, you're worshiping stuff. Yeah. And what is Pharaoh's now initial response? Denial. No. No, no I didn't know. No. Well, yeah, he brought some people in to say, okay. But, but eventually he tried to cleanse it. That's right. But it didn't work. And if so, he goes to Moses and says, okay, I submit. And the plague is called off. And then after the plague is called off, what happens next? He changes his mind. Hardens his heart. And so another plague comes and he repents again. And so understand, no ancient ruler had more truth revealed to him than Pharaoh. Right. Over and over and again, Pharaoh was given opportunity with evidence truth that what he was doing was wrong. It was out of harmony with God. It was worshiping stuff that had no power over and over. And ultimately, it ends up on the 10th one because their most powerful God was um, Horus, which was the God of the dead. And Pharaoh's son, and of course, Pharaoh himself was worshiped as. God. And Pharaoh's firstborn son is the next. God. God. Okay. And so, so at the end, even your God, who you believe controls death, and your next God, I show is not God. It wasn't punishment. There was no punishment. And was it just for Pharaoh that he was doing all this? No. Who else is benefiting from this? All the people. In the Everybody. All the Hebrews, all the Egyptians. There's a mixed multitude that left and was brought over and converted from this. So this was God winning the war for the hearts and minds through a progression and demonstration. So I think it's beautiful. I'm glad you brought that up. Tuesday's uh, lesson, we're really already out of time. I was going to go into the veil in the sanctuary. Should I go into the veil in the sanctuary real quick and describe what's going on with the veil? The lesson articulates an, articulates an interesting and, and, um, and truthful idea that Jesus, when he came to earth, had to veil his heavenly glory in human flesh lest those he came to save would not be able to stand in his glorious presence and be consumed. And we already explained why that would happen. Uh, but, but they infer from that, without overtly saying, but they infer that therefore the veil is Jesus. Is the veil in the temple that was torn in two Jesus? No. Well, think this through with me. Was the barrier that prevents us from approaching God Jesus? Is Jesus the one in the way? That has to be removed. But the veil was in the way. It had to be removed. It had to be opened. We couldn't go because it was was blocking us. Is Jesus the blocker that blocks us from coming to God? No. No. The only method available. Or was Jesus himself God's agent to bring us back into unity with God? And wasn't Jesus himself working to remove all barriers between us and God? And behind the veil was the Shekinah glory. Does Jesus obstruct our ability to see God, or is Jesus the light which lightens all men about God? Light. You've seen me? So there are multiple problems, multiple, if you make the veil out to be Jesus. What does obstruct our ability to see God, though? Sinfulness and 
Lies. lies lies about God. That's correct. Satan is the father of lies and our own selfish nature obstruct it. And these must be taken out of the way. And Jesus is the truth that destroys lies. And Jesus took upon, became sin, though he knew no sin, and took our sinfulness to the cross and destroyed it at the cross and established a sinless, perfect humanity in his own life journey. Thus he opens the way. And at the cross, the only part of the sanctuary service that was ever destroyed by God directly was the veil, veil, and it was destroyed at the cross. And what does the Bible say about what Christ's death destroyed? He destroyed him who holds the power of death that is the devil. He destroys death and brings life and mortality to life, and he destroyed the devil's work when the devil has been working to put his image in the hearts of men. And at the cross, these things were destroyed, and the veil was rent. And so what does the veil represent? It represents, in my view, the lies that Satan tells that makes it hard for us to understand God and the carnal nature that we possess destroyed at the cross by Christ who overcame it and opens a new and living way. The angels on the cross represent the ministering angels of God who are there to help us with the lies of Satan and our own nature, but the angels cannot destroy the lies about God because they aren't God. Only God could reveal the truth about God, and Jesus did that. And the angels can't overcome our nature. Christ and his humanity overcame our fallen nature and opened a new and living way. And thus, um, I believe that's what the veil represents the obstacles to our reconciliation to God, which are Satan's lies and our own sinfulness that were both destroyed by Christ at the cross and a new and living way is open for us. You have another problem if you make the, the, uh, the cross, excuse me, the veil be Christ, and that is God then strikes down Christ because God struck down or tore the veil, so God is the one who killed Christ at the cross, which many do teach. It's also part of the penal legal lie. So that's my view on the veil. And uh, we're, we're already five minutes over, so let's go ahead and close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love and the truth that you revealed in Christ and that you're preparing us and preparing place for us. And we're so eager to get out of this old worn-out tent of a body and put on our immortal bodies, Lord. We long for that day, and we ask that you will enable us to, to be your lights and agents on, the, on this planet now to advance your gospel, that the world can be prepared, and we can see you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.